You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hello and good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. I am Michelle Camayo, the compliance leader here at Bolton. And I'm working with employers on a daily basis. We're having these practical discussions with employers. I'm not giving legal advice. And always my, my caution is that you want to be diligent with your updates. So make sure that you are either listening every month or, and you're reading the Bolton blogs and the Bolton compliance alert. So you stay up to date on emerging guidance or regulations or ordinance or whatnot. The objective today is to help employers address or solve their compliance concerns and issues. Ask Michelle was created to answer questions most meaningful to our audience members. So that's what this is all about. So I'm going to go over a few updates and then I will read a few questions that I received throughout the month. You can always submit a question, by the way, at askmichelle at boltonco.com. You can submit a question throughout the month at any time. And then when it comes to the date that I'm, uh, you know, you're listening to me, then I'll read your question and answer on air. If you happen to miss one of our episodes, that's okay, because you can go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, type in Kamayo's Compliance Talk, and you can listen to all previous episodes. Let's go ahead and get started. There's a lot going on. There always is this time of year. Uh, governors are signing pieces of legislation before everyone goes on break. I know, for example, here in California, the governor is sitting on many, many different laws that have passed, and we're waiting to see which ones he signs into law. And that is, he has until the end of this month. So in California, we might see some some news and new laws go into effect. So you want to watch for that in the next couple of weeks. So we'll hear more there. But as for now, and for this episode, you see what I've got, some compliance chatter. These are topics I've heard in the past month. For example, the ACA affordability percentage dropped for 2024 pretty significantly compared to past years. So now affordability is down to 8.39% of household income for 2024, which is compared to 9.12% in 2023. So if you're using the federal poverty level safe harbor in your ACA reporting, that safe harbor will be $101.94 for 2024. In 2023, it was $103.28, just to kind of give that into perspective. So as you're planning for open enrollment, if you are, like most employers are, I would say about 60 to 70% of employers renew on January 1, which means the odds are 7 out of 10 of you listening right now are going through your open enrollment or getting it started. So ensure that your contributions are affordable if you're an applicable large employer, which of course means you have over 50 full-time equivalents. It's Medicare season. So the Medicare Part D credible coverage notices must be distributed to your eligible 
employees, and the deadline to distribute is October 15th. We sent out a Bolton compliance alert on that. That's probably old news. We've been doing that for so many years, and it's not new, but it does need to be done every year by October 15th, which coincides with Medicare open enrollment. Oh, we have some tough topics coming up that we can, um, you know, I guess I'll, I'll say that, but for right now, let's talk about mental health parity um, and Addiction Equity Act. So what we have is, we call it MAPIA, by the way, totally intuitive, I know, <laughs> but it's M-H-P-A-E-A, MAPIA. It stands for the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. Um, there are, is a lot happening, whether you've been aware of the headlines or not, and there's been so much information thrown at us from the feds that you've probably gotten to the point where you just ignore the headlines because you don't know what to do. And we want to be there for you and help you decipher what you really need to know and what action you really need to take. So we are hosting a webinar. So please join me and Casey from IMA Compliance and then Bob Radicke, who you may have heard from before, on October 10th. Bolton sent out a webinar invite yesterday. So everyone listening should have received that webinar invite for MAPIA, uh, just what you need to know. And there is, there's a lot to, to look at and review, and we are simplifying it. So I, I hope you join us. And the next item that we're hearing a lot about, because it is news right now, it's relevant, are something we call the gag clause attestations. These attestations are due by the end of this year, so the deadline is coming. And first, I want to preface this by saying that the gag clause attestations are part of the federal transparency efforts. So if we look at the federal transparency efforts as an umbrella, Underneath that umbrella are many, many different laws and regulations. One of them is the gag clause attestation, and it's really the gag clause prohibition and subsequent attestations. So the big news was that in 2021, CAA passed a law in there that stated that carriers and insurers and group health plans could no longer have gag clauses written into their, their contractual agreements with providers or service agreements and the like. And that was a prohibition on gag clauses. So now it's time to attest to compliance to the gag clause prohibition. And that's due at the end of December. Now, it is part of the federal transparency effort. So if you're prohibiting gag clauses, what are you doing? You're opening up transparency. You're forcing transparency, if you will, because now you can't say to the provider or you can't use an excuse that, oh, we can't talk about that because of the gag clause. There are no more gag clauses, or there should not be. If there are any, there should not be. They are unlawful between group health plans and, and providers. See, it is a complicated topic, so I did introduce a two-minute video. I did a really brief video. We posted it to LinkedIn, so I'm, I am, I've linked that here in the slides. And overall, I just want to say, if you're a fully insured group health plan, 
The carriers will attest on your plan's behalf in most cases, which is welcome news. So the good news is you, you are responsible for compliance as the group health plan sponsor, but it's your carrier in practice. It's your carrier who's the one who, who's in charge of that and who has to comply. And they've also come out and said, look, we will attest on behalf of our clients. That's great news. If you have a self-insured medical plan, not so great news. Most of the time, and almost every single case where we have talked to the TPA or the PBM, they are saying that the, the plan sponsor, which is you, the employer, must attest. So you'll have to take steps to attest online. It's done through CMS. CMS has a specific link you would click on and then fill out their attestation form to confirm compliance. So with these gag clause attestations, it's really two parts. One, it's complying with a gag clause prohibition and confirming that your carrier or your TPAs or your service providers are complying with the gag clause prohibitions. The second part is the gag clause attestation. So you're attesting to that compliance. Hopefully that helps simplify it. And I know probably most of you here in California are looking or working with a fully insured group health plan. So it makes it a little bit easier. The next topic, I talked about this last time we were together. And I think it's worth saying again, because I've seen that Champ Plan has been marketing their product. It's really, I think they market it as a wellness program or a wellness plan. But Champ Plan is one of the most popular ones. And I want to put this out here again. The IRS has warned us again and again that these programs are not compliant. Uh, every couple years, Champ Plan comes out with a new slide deck and they come out with new documentation that looks like it's, it's um, providing supporting evidence that the IRS considers them compliant. I've looked at all of that. I've reviewed it. I can confidently tell you that unfortunately, Champ Plan is not compliant with the IRS rules. So I do not recommend going down that path if you've started it with Champ Plan. And of course, if you do, then just know you are taking on risk. And from the outside, it looks like pretty significant risk, but that that is just something that some employers choose to, to um, some employers have a higher risk tolerance than others. And that is, that is completely fine as long as you know what you're getting into, of course. I also talked about California SDI, so our uh, short-term disability insurance run by the state. Changes are coming. They are not welcome changes. On one hand, they're not welcome. On the other hand, you know, there's going to be a significant amount of California residents that will benefit from it. So really what's happening is there, there's no more wage ceiling as of January 1 of 2024. So high wage earners are going to feel this because they will pay more taxes. On the flip side of that, that's how they're funding increased benefits starting in 2025. If you want to hear about all the details behind that, we do have a bulletin blog post on that. And you can see I've linked it here. So we've talked about group benefits for all of these bullet points, and now we're just going to shift over to the property insurance industry. 
You may know, you may be involved in the purchase of PNC insurance at your organization. I wanted to give you an update for California news. The governor declared a property insurance state of emergency because we have a property insurance availability crisis. That's, that's, I don't think that's up for debate. That is a real thing. And Commissioner Lara promised to expedite rate filings to bring more options into the marketplace because we had a lot of insurers pull out. So they're taking a lot of steps. And I said they, and that's the Department of Insurance in California and the, the legislators are taking, or the governor, I should say. They're taking steps to ensure that we can get more options. Now, I didn't say more cheap. I didn't say cheaper options, more options into the marketplace. So we'll see what becomes of that. It's certainly necessary. I mean, we're, we're in this crisis and the governor and Department of Insurance, they know they're working on it. They, they think they have a good plan. And you can find that executive order from the governor. I've linked that as well if you're interested on that. And, of course, here at Bolton, we have uh, property and casualty insurance experts. And we also are advocates at the, the federal and the state level for getting these bills passed. So if you have any questions, let me know and I can connect you with the real experts. I did talk about the gag clause prohibition and the subsequent attestation. And I'm not sure if this is, because we're not yet at the end of the year, this might not be prominent right now, but it will be, especially as you start to see communication from your carriers or your TPAs or your PBMs. So I wanted to give you a few notes on this if you need to go back to it. So the attestation was originally supposed to be per year, but it was delayed, which is really making it messy because now when plan sponsors go to attest, they have to attest all the way back to December, 20, December 27th of 2020. It wasn't supposed to be that way. And that's created, uh, I mean, I want to be honest here, it's created a mess. It really has. And... Um, because of that, it's not going to be clean. The reporting either on the carrier side or if the, uh, if the group health plan is doing it, it's not going to be clean. And nothing frustrates me more. So you probably know that. So what, what I want to do is what I've been working with is finding out, all right, CMS has to know they've created this mess when it comes to these gag clause attestations. So what are they doing about it to recognize that they, they – created this and we need it to be fixed. So via email, we've been told, it has been reported that CMS informally stated that they won't issue penalties for non-compliance in prior years. So that's interesting and it's promising. There's probably more to follow on this. I suspect we're going to get some clarity from CMS regarding the attestations. I expect it's going to come in the next couple of weeks. In fact, CMS has a webinar today that I will be on where they are going to address some of this, and, um, and I hope to report back with some, some more information. I'm sure that I will. I, candidly, we don't think that the feds will track answers or enforce compliance this first year. I mean, it's brand new to everyone, and the intention behind these attestations 
is so that you as the group health plan sponsor could go to your carrier, could go to your TPAs and start asking the questions. Are you in compliance with the gag clause prohibition? Do you have gag clauses? You know, that's their intention. So it's, it's always nice to know the intention. That way it kind of helps us to understand what is the risk of noncompliance or um, what are we ultimately looking at? And I said before that the gag clause prohibition and the attestations are born out of the federal transparency efforts. So, you know, if you're wondering, well, how will these gag clause prohibitions lower prices or why do we even have transparency efforts going on? Well, first, I should say and remind you that the gag clause prohibition and attestations are part of the very large federal transparency effort that you can think of as one big (laughs) effort. And these efforts are about forcing transparency around pricing so that the information is available and available to whom? Not to us as, you know, regular lay people. It's going to be accessible to the data analytics industry, frankly, so that they can build tools for patients and plants to foster competition and maybe even drive it will hopefully drive innovative programs, which will hopefully then result in lower prices. It's not something that will happen overnight, these lower prices, but I think that uh, most of us, the those I've talked to in the industry, the experts, we all agree it will eventually drive down prices, but it's not going to be this year, probably not next year. You know, it's going to be a process. All right. I don't have any questions on the topics we've talked about so far. So I'm going to go into ask Michelle the questions I've received. The first item here is interesting. And I have a poll for you uh, around this. It's qualifying event season, by the way. I'm not sure if you knew that, but we are getting qualifying event questions all over the place. We get several a day, uh, I would say in the tens of twenties a day about qualifying events. And they're simple. They're fairly simple, straightforward questions. Like the one here you see, you know, this one is my husband's not on my insurance on Monday. He gives his notice and his insurance runs out at the end of September. Fairly normal. That's where to happen. And he's signing on to a new job that starts October 30th. So he's asking whether it's possible for insurance to cover him in the gap month of October. I have a quick question for you listening. Who or what governs qualifying events? Who or what governs qualifying events? I'm going to test your knowledge here. As I'm doing that, I gave you a few handouts that I hope you will find helpful if you are into the benefits administration at your company or organization. You would really benefit from the HIPAA special enrollment rights and a cheat sheet of what's a qualifying event and what action could be taken. I have given you my secret cheat sheet. It's the, it's the uh, attachment labeled IRS qualifying events. It's... It's not necessarily an, an all-encompassing list, but it, it gives you very, tons and tons of scenarios. So you can pull those down. You can download those and have it at your side as you're answering questions from your employees. I hope it's helpful. Oh, okay. We've all, we only half have responded 
So I'll give you the results here uh, if you don't have them on your screen. It looked like it was going to be the majority saying that the carriers and the, or AKA the health insurers were the ones in charge of governing those qualifying events. And then I've got some IRS, uh, not ERISA, not ERISA. And then the majority so far has agreed on IRS, HIPAA, and the carriers or health insurance. Yes, that's who governs qualifying events. So it is the IRS because of the Section 125 plan. So if you have a Section 125, permitted qualifying events are actually outlined in your Section 125. But HIPAA also has a say because of the HIPAA special enrollment rights, which are also viewed as qualifying events. And then your carrier. Now, your carrier gets to have a say because not all qualifying events are mandated by law. So carriers can place their own restrictions on non-mandated qualifying events. So HIPAA special enrollment rights, those are widely known qualifying events, like the birth of a child is a HIPAA special enrollment right. And we just call it a qualifying event, and you may not even have known it's actually a HIPAA special enrollment right. So that's, that's required by law. So the carrier doesn't have a choice. They have to allow enrollment onto a plan at, with the birth of a child because it's legally mandated. But there are some qualifying events that aren't legally mandated. And so you want to be careful with some of the obs more obscure ones because carriers don't always follow suit with what's optional qualifying events. Someone asked a question about a qualifying event. Can employees change or switch plans due to a qualifying event? Well, it depends. It really depends on the qualifying event. So that's also why it, it is, it can get complicated because we have these other paths you can go down. It really depends on the qualifying event to what corresponding change can be made. And that's why I hope that IRS cheat sheet can really help you because it will help you understand what changes can be made along with what particular event. That's very interesting. Uh, yes, after birth, you can change plans, by the way. You can change plans and you can also add other dependents via what they call a tag-along rule. In this particular question, so we'll kind of get back to um, the question that was posed. So this, this uh, the employee's husband gave his two weeks notice and he's losing insurance. That's a, that's a qualifying event. He lost eligibility with another employer's plan. Qualifying event allows him to enroll in his spouse's plan. But then he's signing on to a new job that starts October 30th. So he'll have access to new employer coverage at that time. That is a second qualifying event for him to drop off the employee's plan and join his own employer's plan during that particular window. So you have to remember, there's always that 30-day, in one instance it's 60 days, but there's always a 30-day window. So as long as the qualifying event, you're being notified within that 30 days, you can then allow the change. So in this particular case, there are two qualifying events, and yes, he can sign up for his on his spouse's insurance for the month of October to avoid that gap, and then he can drop the spouse's insurance and go on to his own employer's insurance after that. Oh, someone posed a really great question we get fairly often about a qualifying event. 
If someone is separated from their spouse, but not legally divorced, can they remove the spouse from their plan? This also depends. If there's a court document with a legal separation agreement, then yes, typically that is going to suffice to be able to remove the spouse. But without any type of court document, then no, you cannot remove the spouse until there's a court document, like a divorce decree, for example. That's a great question. We do get that one fairly often. Okay, moving on to the next question here. We currently mail our ACA reporting files to the IRS. So that's the 1094 and 1095Cs. And this person heard that the IRS will no longer accept paper mailings and we must e-file going forward. Is that true? Yes, it is true. So if you're one of the, I would say, rare employers under 250, or at least you're issuing less than 250 forms, and you're still mailing those forms to the IRS, they will no longer accept mailings or paper filings. All those required to file must e-file starting with the 2023 reporting, which of course is due in early 2024. So all employers required to file must e-file. If you currently file paper and you don't have a software system or a system that will help you e-file, then um, you can let me know. We have a couple of vendors that will charge a very nominal fee in order to give you access to that e-filing system because realistically, it's not, most smaller employers are not going to have the IT capabilities to e-file on them, their own. They will have to hire uh, someone, a vendor. They'll have to hire a vendor who already has an e-file connection set up. If your payroll company is filing the forms, your payroll company is already e-filing. I do not know any payroll company that would mail uh, those files. They are set up to e-file, especially if we're talking about, you know, ADP, Paylocity, um, the large payroll com companies, they're not mailing, they're already e-filing. But you, you would want to ask if, you, if you're uncertain, then definitely it does not hurt to ask. And I, I encourage you just reach out and ask for that. Okay, I have another question about qualifying events. This one's also a good one. It's a lesser known qualifying event, I would say. Uh, for, for the Dependent Care FSA, is it considered a qualifying event when a child gets admitted into a daycare and they can start deferral into the DCAP or dependent care program? Uh, yes, if the child it gets admitted into a daycare, let's say they're on a wait list and then they're admitted and they get off that wait list, then yes, that is a qualifying event for the parent to sign up for dependent care and start their elections. Regarding the 1095Cs, can they be provided to staff electronically to meet the California deadline, the January 31 deadline? Uh, it, it, yes, they can in some circumstances. Um, I did release a blog alert on that in the past, so you can search that on the Bolton blog alerts. I don't remember off the top of my head, um, but in certain, certain circumstances, yes, they can provide them electronically. And I, the last question we have here, is there any material that must be distributed during open enrollment? 
The answer is yes, absolutely. Some materials you distribute distribute are nice to have, right? It's just nice to give to the employee for them to have some for, some frame of reference. But other materials are required by law because they're annual notices. And the first one is the medical SBCs, Summary of Benefits and Coverage and Glossary. These are horizontally formatted benefit summaries, but they're not called benefit summaries. They're called SBCs. They are required by law. They must be distributed to all eligible employees prior to making their enrollment decisions at the time the employee is newly eligible and again during open enrollment. So required by law. Also, the legally required federal notices, or AKA those annual important healthcare notices, those are required to be distributed to plan participants annually at the time the employee is newly eligible and again during open enrollment. And also the HIPAA Notice of Privacy Practices or the HIPAA NPP that is required to be distributed to plan participants annually at the time the employee is newly eligible and again during open enrollment. So really we can, we can summarize that and say that these three items should be in the new hire benefits packet and should be in your open enrollment materials. Okay, I don't have any more questions, so I'm gonna go into our resources page and then I will leave you until next time. Uh, don't forget about the Bolton blog. You do have to subscribe into the blog, so you would go to boltonco.com blog, scroll down, enter your email address, and then hit subscribe. If you have benefit-related questions, feel free to contact your Bolton team if you're a Bolton client. Of course, you can always come to us. And don't forget, you have access to Mineral. If you're a Bolton client, it's a great resource for the latest employment news and sample forms and policies, paid sick leave charts, just a plethora of, of uh, information and trainings that you can access. The Medicaid Enrollment and Unwinding Tracker, if you wanted to see how your state or state of California is doing and, and how many people have lost coverage due to uh, the continuous enrollment uh, provision being, um, I guess, eliminated, we should say. And for employment law, you all know I like Fisher Phillips. They have great articles and I like the way they're written. They're very easy to understand. I would point you to the California back ground check requirements that are effective on 10-1. I've linked that article. And then there's an article on their site, a recent one, what all K through 12 schools need to know about immigration. So new form I-9 and work visa options for teachers. So I linked that article there as well. Of course, we're not employment law experts. We are insurance brokers, and our, our expertise is really within that insurance space. But I've done a lot of work with Fisher Phillips. We answer a lot of employment law questions just because they often will integrate with benefits or in some form or fashion, they, they intersect with employee benefits. That's it for today. Thank you for joining me and I will see you next month. Don't forget, you can submit your questions at any time throughout the month just by emailing askmichelle at boltonco.com. Thank you. Bye everyone. Mm -hmm.